Good morning, good morning. We could all come back to our seats. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2012. Uh, my name is Ray Sean. Uh, today I'll just be uh, preaching, and what we'll be talking about is uh, idolatry, in a sense. And I think it's a, a pretty relevant time to talk about idolatry and the fact that uh, this is the time of the year that, that many of us, we set New Year's resolutions, we set goals, we set objectives and things that we want to achieve, things we want to accomplish for ourselves, and it's good to have these things in and of themselves to, to better ourselves, and it's, it's great to have that, but uh, we also, we don't want to miss, uh, when it comes to identifying ourselves by these things, we don't want to, to identify ourselves and find our identity in the things that we can achieve for ourselves or the things that we can accomplish and do for ourselves this year uh, with resolutions and things. We want to continue to treasure Christ and find our identity and our worth in Christ, and Uh, It's when we begin to identify and find joy and peace and satisfaction in the things that we can attain and achieve for ourselves that the Bible tells us that we are uh, committing that sin of idolatry, which is essentially placing things, good things or bad things, in the uh, place that God alone deserves to occupy. And so uh, we want to make sure we don't do that. We continue to glorify Christ and treasure him as, as our supreme source of, of life and of joy and of, of peace and everything that we have in him. So if you turn to turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 7 through 12, we're going to look at a, a passage in Ezekiel that, that deals with uh, the idols of our heart, not necessarily the external idols uh, that, we, that people could go around and say, yeah, you worship this, or yeah, you worship your flat screen or your phone or something, but the idols that we hide in our hearts, the things that people don't see, the, the things that, that we don't tend to put out there to tell people that we're dealing with or idolizing. So uh, we're going to look at that in this passage and uh, see what this, this has to say about the idols of our heart and identifying them and then removing them. So uh, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now. We just thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord God. Uh, just thank you for bringing us into a new year. Thank you for the wonderful things that you've done for us, especially in your son, Jesus, who has died on the cross in our place for our sins, Lord God, so that we might enjoy you and, and glorify you in all things. We just ask, Lord God, that you would speak today and not me, that you would, uh, your thoughts would go forth, that your words would go forth, and that we would receive everything that you would have for us to receive. Open up our hearts, our minds, Lord God, so that we uh, apply this word, Lord God, and continue to see how you deal with us in, in our idolatry, Lord God, and when we at times place things over and above you, Lord God, and we see that your grace is sufficient for us. Uh, we just continue to glorify you and ask that you be exalted and made beautiful and glorious in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I'll begin with a quote from John Calvin, and John Calvin starts off in his Institutes, and he says, from this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Meaning that our heart, the, that when we come into this world, the first thing that we're doing is we're idolizing things. We're taking good things or bad things and we're making them into to ultimate things. And so our human heart, our heart is an idol factory is what John Calvin is saying. And when we use this term idolatry today, and it's, something, it's a term that we'll, I'll, I use a, a lot, but when we use this term idolatry, we're not thinking about how you know, something that may pop up in your mind is ancient peoples or, or foreign peoples who are bowing down to statues or, or bowing down and, and sacrificing things to foreign gods or, or, or making themselves a graven image and, and, and 
taking off little pieces of food and giving it to him or, or, or sacrificing things in order to find some fulfillment from a deity. But when we talk about idolatry, it's not something that has, has stopped and it's something that has passed away, but it's something that's, that's presently with us. It's something that we all face and that we idolize things, that we, we take things and we put them in the place that God alone deserves. We give things the worship and the adoration and the affection that God and God alone deserves. And we, we treasure these things and we seek to find fulfillment in things, whether they're good things or whether they're bad things, everything from our careers to, to our children, from our, our sins to, to savings accounts. We, we go after things, whether they're good or bad, and we make them ultimate things, thinking that we can find fulfillment, thinking that we can find contentment and joy and satisfaction from these things when we're to find that in God and in Christ. And so when we use that term idolatry, we're talking about something that all of us face, whether we believe in Christ and trust in him as our only hope for salvation or whether you're here today and you may be wrestling with, with trying to understand these things, all of us face the sin of idolatry and the fact that we are always taking something and replacing and putting it above God and putting it above Christ in our life, the place that he and he alone is supposed to occupy. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps one of the, the greatest preachers in the last 100 years or so, gives this definition of idolatry. He says, it's anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my attention, my energy, and my money to it effortlessly. This is what idols are, and this is, this is what we do when we idolize things. We take anything, whether it's good or whether it's bad, and we put it in the place that God and God alone is supposed to occupy. That seat of lordship that he's supposed to have, that seat of sovereignty, that seat where he was supposed to, to dictate and control and to, to, to instruct our lives. We, we take idols, we take ourselves, we take careers, jobs, money, a status, a, a party, a, a, any, any and everything. We, we take it and we put it in that place and we say that God, in a sense, is not enough. That if I put this thing, myself or this idol that I'm seeking in this place, that I will be content, that I'll find satisfaction, that I, that I will be following after truth, that I will be fully satisfied with this idol. And so this is what we mean by idolatry. Idolizing anything is when we take something or someone and give them the affection, the attention, and the adoration that belongs to God. In a sense, we worship that thing. We seek to find fulfillment in it. And it's exchanging God's supreme glory and beauty for something less. And when we look at this passage, before we jump in this passage, we want to have the the proper perspective of what idolatry is. We'll look at three things about what idolatry is uh, and apply them to this passage. And when we look at what Ezekiel sees these elders doing and these, these people doing in the temple when they're serving these idols rather than serving God. We want to see how we all do the same thing, essentially. So three things about idolatry. One, idolatry is serious. God takes idolatry very serious, so, so much so that when he delivers the people from Israel, he, he redeems them, he brings them through the Red Sea, he, he brings them into the wilderness, he gives them his law, he gives them his covenant, and he, he, he establishes the Ten Commandments and the, what he requires of them. And the first two, thing, this, first two things that he hits on in, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, have to deal with idolatry. He says that you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no graven image. You shall not bow down to any graven image to worship it, for I am the Lord your God. And it it says after that, it, it provokes him to jealousy. 
So we see that God takes idolatry very serious and the fact that he establishes the first two commandments that, he, that he, he puts in place have to do with idolatry and us taking something and putting it in place of him or worshiping uh, whether it's a statue or, or, or an idea or, or your morals or your worldview. It's, it's worshiping something, putting it in his place and giving it the adoration and the, the treasuring that he deserves. So when we say that idolatry is serious, we mean that all sin is idolatry. When you look at the rest of those Ten Commandments and you see how the first five commandments have to deal with our relationship with God and then the next five commandments deal with our relationship with one another, anytime we break any one of those commandments, whether it's, it's bearing false witness, whether it's lying or cheating or adultery or, or fornication or coveting, anytime we break any one of those commandments, it's ultimately because we have broken the first two commandments that deal with idolatry. See, when we break any one of those other commandments and when we do something against God or in our neighbor, uh, against our neighbor, in a sense, what we are doing is we are dethroning God. We are saying that he is not worthy to occupy the position that he occupies, but rather we ourselves are worthy to occupy that position. So we place ourselves on that throne that God is supposed to be placed on. And we say, okay, I'm going to dictate my life according to what I feel that I can find contentment in, what I feel I find joy in, and what I feel I find satisfaction in. And in a sense, we dethrone God and set ourselves up on that throne and, and worship ourselves and treasure our desires and the things that we go after. And that, in a sense, means that all All sin is idolatry. All sin comes from breaking those first two commandments that uh, dethroning God and setting up some other idol to worship. So it says in Exodus how the jealousy of God is shown. It's shown when idols are given the worship and the adoration that he alone deserves. And why is the jealousy of God shown? Why does he say, I am a jealous God? And it's not because that he's in sort of some sort of competition with these idols as if these idols provide something that he can't provide or that they possess some sort of power that he can't provide. But rather, his jealousy breaks forth because in our idolatry, when we choose to worship or serve other things other than him, we choose to embrace a lie. And when we see God, we see that he is the essence of truth. We see that he is ultimately pure, ultimately good, ultimately just, and ultimately righteous. And to embrace an idol and to to embrace idolatry is to embrace a lie. It's to say that, God, you aren't ultimately truthful. You aren't ultimately just. You aren't ultimately good. But rather, this idol, this thing that I am pursuing, has this. It possesses the, uh, these attributes that say that, that in this idol, I'll find ultimate fulfillment. I'll find ultimate joy. I'll find ultimate satisfaction. And so, therefore, idolatry is willfully embracing a lie. And this is why his jealousy breaks forth. Idolatry says, God, I see your power. I see your invisible attributes. I see your glory. I see all of these things. And I'm deliberately choosing to say that this idol is more dependent than, dependable than you. This idol is more worthy to be treasured than you. And it's no matter what we take, anything good or bad. Like we said, anything from a a status that we desire to achieve or or, or a person or a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a spouse, or whether it's sin, whether it's fornication, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's it's drinking and becoming drunk, it's anything we take, good or bad, and replace God with is idolizing it. It's embracing a lie. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, we see how idolatry is serious and that Paul calls it a great exchange. It's exchanging the truth for a lie. And it says in Romans 1, 21 through 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's this great exchange going on. The glory that God deserves, the worship, the adoration, the treasuring that God deserves in our idolatry, we choose to take that and exchange it. We choose to say that, God, you're not, you're not worthy of that. Rather, this thing is worthy of that. My career is worthy of that. My cell phone is worthy of that. My family is worthy of that. It's worthy of the ultimate joy and the ultimate treasuring that you deserve. So Romans continues to go and says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the create worship and serve the cre- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen so the next thing idolatry is sinful when we say idolatry is sinful it, we mean that it's it's accepting a lie and it's and embracing to embrace an idol willfully uh, is to rebel against the truth and against what is right and what is just and that is sin idolatry uh, the thing about idolatry it's not just having your priorities misplaced It's not just taking things, whether they're good or bad, and seeking to just fill this void. And we find out that it won't fill the void because God is ultimately supposed to fill the void. And so we go after relationships, we go after jobs, we go after money, we go after sex, we go after things to try to fill that void. And so we end up with our priorities misplaced, and now we're hurt, and now we're failing, now we're in fear, and now we're in confusion. That's one side of the coin, but idolatry is sinful because all the while, while we're trying to fill this void, so to speak, we are actively and willfully rebelling and sinning against God. In our, pursue, in our pursuit of idols, in our pursuit of going after things to find fulfillment, to find joy, to find peace, it's like we're taking a stone and we're throwing it at the throne of God, telling him that he should get off because these things are better, are better suit than he is. So it's sin. Idolatry will not only affect us and affect our lives by causing misery and confusion and hurt, it ultimately separates us from God. It ultimately puts us contrary against him so that rather than he, us just turning our backs on him so that we're just now indifferent towards him, we're setting ourselves against him as his enemies. Idolatry is sinful and all idolatry is sin. The third thing is idolatry is senseless. It takes attributes that belong solely to God and imagines that they can be found in things that are much less than God. It's senseless. It makes no sense. It's foolish. It's stupid. It's saying that I see God, I see everything that he is, I see that he, I read in the word that he is the ultimate source of joy, the ultimate source of pleasure, the ultimate source of, of peace and contentment and life. And I say that, no, 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 he can't be that. This, this thing, this idol, this thing that I'm saying is, it, it, it is that. It's senseless, it's irrational. God mocks idolaters in the scripture. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 14 through 17, he's talking about this idolater. And he says, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. You've got this carpenter who plants a tree and watches it grow. It says, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. So he cuts the tree down. Now he's using it for a fire to, to heat himself up. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he, breaks, and he bakes bread. So now he, he builds a fire with the wood that's used from the tree that he's planted and now he's baking bread over it and he, he's eating and he's joining himself and, and everything looks good. And it says, also he makes a god and worships it. So the same tree that he planted, that he grew, he cuts it down, uses it for fire, bakes his bread over it and then worships the tree. Idolatry is senseless. 
Half of it he burns in the fire, over half he eats meat. He roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And we essentially do the same things, taking created things, taking things that that we come up with and worshiping them giving them the attention and the adoration that that God deserves, expecting some sort of love, expecting some sort of peace or fulfillment that we can receive from these things. And these things can't even, they can't even speak. They can't even hear. They can't even talk. Idolatry is senseless. Idolatry is sinful. And idolatry is serious. So now we we look at Ezekiel. And we're going to see this idolatry that goes on in this passage particularly the idols that we hold to in our hearts. In the previous, in the previous passage of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is taken up by God uh, when he's sitting amongst the midst of the elders of Judah. And, and it says the Spirit of God comes to him and it appears in the form of a man from the waist up. And from the waist down, it's nothing but this, this glowing appearance of fire. And he, he grabs Ezekiel by a lock of his hair and he pulls him up in between heaven and earth, this kind of Google Earth shot where he sees the, the entire world. And then he zooms into the temple complex in Jerusalem. And in that temple complex in Jerusalem, he goes to the outer court and he sees this image of jealousy. So there's this external idolatry that they set up and said, we're worshiping idols now instead of God. Then he goes inside of the temple and he finds this hidden room that these priests have covered over with this wall. And now they're worshiping God internally inside of this temple. So this is verses 7 through 12 of the passage. We want to focus on this internal idolatry because it's easy to identify the external idols that we pursue. When our God is our stomach or our God is our our flat screen or our our jobs and we pursue these things externally and people can see that. We can even see that. But we want to talk about the internal idols, the idols of our hearts, the things that people don't see, the things that we keep to ourselves, that the secret room we're going to see that that we keep the door locked and we keep a, a drywall hidden over. So the idolatry that is seen in this passage is the idolatry that's found in our hearts. And the question we want to ask ourselves today is that if God were to dig into the walls of our hearts, we were to dig into the walls of our hearts, what idols would God find there? What idols would we find there? What what would we find engraved on the walls? Why would they be there? And ultimately, what would it show that we aren't believing about God and what we aren't believing about the gospel? So let's look at Ezekiel. I'll, I'll read verses 7 through 12. It says, And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So this is what's going on. Ezekiel's being taken by the Spirit of God into this temple. And and the first thing God God does, if we outline this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the secret of idolatry. And then the next thing we'll see is the sinfulness of idolatry. And then after that, we'll see the, the solution to idolatry. So in verse 7 through 8, we see the secret of idolatry. And it says, And he brought me to the entrance of the court, 
And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. What happens is he goes into this inside of the temple, this inner court, and he sees this, this dry wall. God immediately takes him there. It's, it's funny how these priests think God doesn't know where this room is and they set it up in secret, but God goes exactly to the location. He finds it and he finds the hole in the wall that they managed to not cover up and he exposes this hidden room. And he tells Ezekiel to dig into the hole. Dig into the hole in the wall, Ezekiel. Open it up. So Ezekiel's taking this, he's taking his hands and he's digging through mud and he's digging through clay and this, this drywall. And, he, and, and, and when he goes past it, he, he sees this dark place and he sees this room with, with this door. So what happens? He sees this room and with this door and, and then the Lord tells him to go in and he'll see these vile abominations. So firstly, we want to see as, as far as this passage is concerned, I mean, what, what is this saying? That he's taken to this temple. He's not taken to some the idolaters down the street. He's not taken to the Amalekites. He's not taken to the Babylonians. He's taken to the people who are saying that they worship God. He's taken to Jerusalem, the temple where God is supposed to live and dwell. And inside of it, he finds idols. He finds a, a secret room that they're concealing from God and even from all of the other people. And if we can look over at 1 Corinthians, we see how Paul, when he, he's talking to the Corinthian church, and they're dealing with idols of their own because they're now taking philosophy, they're taking worldly wisdom, they're taking sexual immorality, and they're putting it in the place of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3, verses 16, Paul reminds them, and he tells them that in their seeking of philosophy, and their seeking of, of trying to be with Paul and with Apollos, and some trying to be with all of these other parties, and they're idolizing it, Paul tells them, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And that whoever, is God's, if, whoever ruins God's temple, whoever defiles it, God will destroy. So he tells them both, that both corporately and individually, they are the temple, And you and I, if we trust in Christ, if we believe in him and his sacrifice was sufficient for our sins, that he is his spirit is said to dwell with uh, with us and live within us. And we are that temple. We are the temple that the spirit of God lives in and that he gives us a new heart, a new spirit to treasure him and desire him. But but we know that, that oftentimes we're still tempted. We still wrestle hard and fight with idolizing things, looking at good things or bad things and making them ultimate things, putting them in God's place. Paul also continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and reminds them again when they're pursuing this sexual immorality. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So when we see this temple, when we imagine this, this situation in Ezekiel where God is taking Ezekiel by the lock of his hair and he's bringing him to this temple, imagine that God takes you. He grabs you by a lock of your hair, whether you've got it or not. He grabs you by your bald head, maybe. And he takes you, and he puts you into the temple. He puts you into, he, he opens up the walls of your hearts. He, he takes you there. And he says, dig into the walls. Dig into your own heart. Let's look inside to see what's really going. Let's look inside to see if there are any hidden rooms here. If there's anything going on. And so instead of imagining Ezekiel digging into the walls of the temple in this passage, imagine digging into the walls of your own hearts. What will you find? The priests and the elders had constructed this secret room in the temple. They they built on and they added this thing to the temple. They, 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 They constructed this secret room where they would worship idols. It reminded me of this, this case, that, this court case that happened about three years ago, where you had this, this man who was, I forget what country it was in, and 
You may remember this, but it, it made the news. And he had constructed this secret basement on the backside of his house. And it was a basement, and it had a refrigerator and had some walls and had a kitchen down there. But behind that basement, there was another basement. And this man, he, he came off as he was married, he had kids, he, he had a wife, he had kids. And all along, all the while, while this man was, was portraying this image, he would go down to his basement that had this concealed wall and eight layers of locks and doors behind it. And he was raping his daughter for over 24 years. He had this secret room inside of his house. He had this, this secret place that nobody knew about, not even his own wife. We ask ourselves, is this this secret place within us that we hide from God, that we hide from ourselves, that we hide from others? That we go to community and, we're, yeah, we're willing to put this out and put this out and put this out about ourselves and, and put this out and, and say that, yeah, we're, we're transparent and we're wrestling with this and wrestling with that. But all the while we hold on to this secret place inside of us where we idolize things in our, in our hearts and in our minds. This is what, this is what was going on. This room, what, what was this room? What is this room? It's, it's this plan B. It's this option where these priests are not consulting God. It's the, it's the place where we go when we're not praying, when we don't desire God, when we don't want to hear from God, when we don't want to seek him, but rather we want to take the outcome and we want to put it in our own hands. We want to control the situation, and we, but we do that by saying, if I just get this, if I achieve this, if I do that, if I trust in, my, in this for me, if I, if I go after this, then I'll be content. I don't need to consult God. My, my happiness is found in, in this. My happiness is found in that. And if I can just achieve this or, or be that or do this or depend on this, then I'll be good. It's this dark place that we go where we, we set up these idols. We carve them and paint them on the wall as these priests did and say that this is, this is where I'm going to, to find, find peace. This is where I'm going to, to find the answers. This room was a plan B. It's where we go to serve the idol of self and its desires. And ultimately, it's the room that, that nobody gets into. But like the man in that court case, he sets up eight layers of locks and doors. Nobody's getting in there. God's not even getting in there. Well, we think that God's not getting in there. Nobody gets in and nothing gets out. We keep it from God. We keep it from others. And, and, and even in denial, sometimes we keep it from ourselves saying that maybe we're, maybe we're not as bad, maybe we're not idolizing things like we, like we think we are. So this is the, the secret of idolatry. And we ask ourselves, do you embrace your idols in secret? Are there things, imaginations, daydreaming, things that you have set your heart to achieve and your identity in saying that if I got that, I would be so much more happier. If I could be this way, then I'd be so much more content. I would have ultimate peace if I just had this, if I could just do this, or if I could just be this. And we carve it on the wall. We don't necessarily have it yet, but we just carve it on the wall. Do we turn to our idols for satisfaction when no one is looking? Then when we come to church or when we get around others, that we're good and we're in the temple. The temple looks nice. It looks good. Everything's going fine. But then there's, when we're alone, we go to this secret place. We trust in our morality maybe to justify us. We trust in, in, in our, our jobs or our careers to, to have us uh, satisfied. We trust in, in putting in, in our relationships, thinking that we'll ultimately be fulfilled if we just rely and depend on these things. Now, how often do we spend time in this room? How often are we thinking about these idols? What do our thoughts go to? What, are, what do we daydream about? 
when we know that it's not going to be broadcast on a screen, when we know that it's not going to be put out to others for everyone else to see, but we just keep it within ourselves. We go into this dark room with a torch and, and we offer up this incense, so to speak, to these idols. So is the, the secret of, of, of idolatry. And next, the sinfulness of idolatry. What's going on inside of this place? It says in verses 9 through 11, it says, And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Ezekiel, so he said, So I went in and saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing up among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. So Ezekiel's instructed to go in. You can imagine this look of shock on his face as he goes into this temple and he's finding out that they're committing idolatry within it. I mean, this is, this is God's place. This is where God's supposed to dwell at. And what does he find? Finds vile abominations. Well, what? He finds idols from, from Egypt, from Syria, from other lands, worshiping the idols of other nations. And then he finds idol worshipers, burning incense, offering up incense. Even this guy, Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, this was a shock because he was, he was uh, one of the guys who came from a, a well-to-do family. A real moral family, serve the king, serve God, and he's even in here. Idol worshipers and idols. And so we say, well, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to, to do with me? I, I, I don't worship, I don't bow down to my, my flat screen. I don't burn incense to my career. I don't offer sacrifices to my family or, or, or this or that. Or I, don't, I don't do all of these. How is this idolatry? But what it is, it's, it's treasuring. It's treasuring. It's, it's giving worship. It's giving adoration. It's giving love. It's hoping to find some sort of fulfillment. And that, in a sense, is the heart of this idolatry. They're not looking to Christ for these things. They're not looking to God for, this, for, this, to be, for him to be their source of these things. They're seeking other things to find this. And so we ask ourselves, well, well, we see this, this sinfulness of idolatry. Well, how do I know what's in this room? How do I know what's engraved on this wall? I mean, I can imagine, I can, I can imagine some things, but we ask ourselves these questions. What's engraved on the walls of my heart? What will I, well, on the walls of my heart, what will I find if I, if I were to dig into my heart and I were to see the idols? What well, you may know, you may not, but ask yourselves these questions. What do I enjoy and treasure more than God? What makes me feel better about myself? What are the things that I trust in for acceptance, for peace, for joy? What do I find my mind and my heart gravitating to in times of darkness and despair? When you don't feel loved, when you don't feel accepted, when you, when you feel like you're not enough, when you feel like you're not adequate or sufficient, what is your mind, what is your daydreaming, what are your thoughts, what does your heart gravitate to? That's what's engraved. That's what you've, you've drawn up. That's what we've drawn up in our hearts when we, when we do that. What, what, is our, what, are our, what do we think about? What are we going after in our hearts and in our minds? We see the climax of this sinfulness is found in the reason that they give. So in verses 12, it says, God is, is commentating on this situation. He says, then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. And here's their reason. For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Their reason for turning to idols, their reason for going after other things, their reason for dethroning God and putting something else in is his place. 
It's because God doesn't see us. God is, God is done with me. I'm turning my back. I'm finished with that. One, they, they didn't believe, they didn't trust in him as being the ultimate redeemer. They didn't trust in him as being the ultimate treasure, the ultimate provider, the ultimate deliverer who had delivered them in the past and would deliver them in the future. They turned their backs on him. They didn't want anything to do with him. It's not that they forgot he was omniscient. And it's not that they forgot he was omnipresent. They just didn't want anything to do with him. God doesn't see us because God has packed his bags and he's gone. He doesn't care about us. And in our idolatry, we do the same thing. We pursue idols because we do not want God. We're sinful. And also we pursue idols because we feel as though God does not want us. Then when we get in despair, when we get in loneliness, when we get in fear, when we get in frustration, well, God, where are you at? I don't feel you near. I don't feel your presence. I don't feel like you're hearing me. So I'm going to go to plan B. I'm going to go to this this secret place that nobody knows about, and I'm going to dream about some things that I think I can achieve to to make me feel better, some things that I think I can be to make me feel more loved and accepted because I I don't feel you or hear you right now. And this is what the reason for their idolatry was, and this, in a sense, was sin because it was rejecting and and turning against God and, and pursuing something else. And so when we look at this, this secret room, and if you're imagining now even this, the room of your own hearts and the things that are engraved and the things that are up around it, you may think it's career, maybe it's, it's family or it's a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or it's, it's a sin or it's a secret sin or, or it's something that you desire to be or it's a political party or it's your morality or it's a, you're, you're justifying yourself or, or, or no matter what it is. Ultimately, what's engraved on the walls is not those things. It's not good things or bad things, and, and we just engrave them on the wall. Ultimately, what's, what's engraved on the wall, if we, if we look a little bit closer, it's ourselves. It's, it's an image of you. It's an image of me. Our faces are painted on those walls in that secret place. And ultimately, self is the idol beneath the idol. It, it's, it's because we serve ourselves. It's because we exalt and put ourselves in the throne of God, thinking that we can do better than he can. That King Self says to, to us, to ourselves, that go and get this and I'll be happy. Go and do this and I'll feel loved. Go and, do, go and be this. Go and trust in this and I'll feel accepted. I'll feel appeased. So we see inside of that room, it's, it's our own faces. That, our, our, that Self is choosing to say it can do a better job than God and therefore Self should be adored. Self should be treasured. Self should be made comfortable. Self should feel like it's feeling loved, feeling joy. Self, self feels like it can have all of those things within it. We burn incense to the God of self and do what self requires us to do so that self will be appeased. And this is where we get things like self-righteousness. That if I set up my own standards, even if I obey these standards to the best of my ability, then I'm good. I don't need a savior. I, I am my savior. Self-seeking, seeking to to get what we can for ourselves to to have fulfillment, to have ultimate joy, to have ultimate peace. We seek that for ourselves and we look to gain that through all kinds of idols. Self-dependence, that ultimately we don't want to depend on God. I don't want to trust him. I'd rather trust myself and what I can get for myself so that I can say I'm dependent upon myself. And even self-admiration. The fact that if I get this thing, if I become this, if I, if I can be that or achieve that, I feel better about myself. The picture on the wall won't look so bad. And so this is the sinfulness of idolatry. 
and ultimately in our own hearts. This is, this is our, our self is painted on the wall, and this is the sinfulness of it. And in this passage, it's, it's these idols that, that, that were engraved on the wall. It's these things that our desires are set upon. Like I said earlier, it's not even that the, they had these idols in the room sitting around these statues or this altar set up. They were just engraved on the wall. They didn't even actually have the actual idol in the room. They just had pictures of it. They were just thinking about it. If I just look at the picture and think about it, I think we'll feel better. If we just look at the gods of Syria and Egypt, maybe they'll come and help us and deliver us. And it's, so many times it is with us because sometimes we don't even possess the things that we're idolizing. If we're single, we're looking to, to, to idol, we idolize a spouse that we don't have. If we're in a, a bum career, we're idolizing a career that we don't have and we paint it on the wall. We paint these pictures. And our desires are set upon these things. And this is what makes idolatry idolatry because our desires, our heart, our affection, our, our love, our joy is set into finding fulfillment. Taking a journey to find to find life and love and joy and peace in these things. And ultimately it falls short every time and it separates us from God. So we see that idolatry is in our hearts. We see that there are these secret rooms and and we're hopeless to fix anything about it. These guys didn't tear this room down. They they messed up the temple. They built this this other room. They're hopeless to do anything about it. They they, they can't remove themselves from these idols. It's so hard. They They can switch idols like you and I can do, we can switch idols so that, no, okay, no, I'm no longer idolizing my career, but now it's on to something else. And we're just playing musical chairs with these idols, and we're just switching them. We're thinking if we just put these things away, then we won't idolize anymore. And it's just something else. Something else comes along the line. Something else comes down the pike, and it's something brand new. Like we said, we've been idolizing from day one. We, we, we didn't idolize Elmo when we were two. We idolized something iPhones when we were 23. I mean, it's, it's always something new. We say, if I put these idols away from myself, then maybe I won't be an idolater anymore. But we can't help ourselves. Our hearts are, are prone to these things, and we need a solution. So what is the solution? How does God deal with this idolatry? How does he deal with these priests in, in this dark room? How does he end this idolatry once and for all? For us, for if we believe and trust in Christ, and even if we're guilty of idolizing things and putting things in God's place, how does God deal with us? Let's turn to James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6. How does God deal with our idolatry? How does he, how does he presently deal with it when, when you or I, when we believe on Christ and even we're still just wrestling, replacing him with things, trusting in other things rather than him? James 4, 1 through 6. And I'll say something about Ezekiel before we read that. It's, it's, it's that he, he just, these people, these, these idolaters, you and I, these priests in Ezekiel, these, these, these elders, these people who are, who are anyone who's ever committed idolatry, we deserve to be dealt with in injustice, in God's anger, in God's wrath upon us. Why? Because Christ, God, is that, there's that faithful groom. And, and to those of us, we believe and trust in him. We are the bride. And, and anytime we go after idolatry, anytime we go after serving idols and pursuing other things, trying to find the ultimate joy and peace and satisfaction in those things, it's like we're committing spiritual adultery. We're saying that, that this is better than the spouse. That I can find this love, this joy, this peace with this lover other than, other than God. 
And therefore, we deserve to be dealt with in justice. We deserve to be dealt with in wrath because we, we turn our backs on God in idolatry. And we deserve condemnation. But James 4, 1 through 6, is, James is writing to these Jewish Christians, and he's, he's telling them, he's saying that, that they're dealing with the same things, these same idols that these people are dealing with in Ezekiel. It, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? They're passions that you desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet and you cannot obtain, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Because of these idols in their hearts, these, all these other things, murder and quarreling and arguing and lust and passions are now manifesting themselves. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They were going after these things in the world. They were going after the relationships, uh, linking up with, with people they, they, they were to be, un- to be unyoked with and, and pursuing these things to try to fulfill them. And he says, therefore, whoever, whosoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? So here it goes, jealousy. Here it goes, you've provoked God. James is telling them because of your passions, because of your coveting, because of your worldliness, you have provoked God to jealousy. There's trouble. When we have idols, man, we should say there's trouble. I'm provoking God to jealousy, but here's the solution. The solution is not us trying to fix ourselves more, try to rid ourselves of all these idols because we see that we just play musical chairs with idols. This is not one thing, it's another. But here's the solution. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the solution is is God's grace. When we deserve wrath, when we deserve judgment, when we deserve to be wiped out for our idolatry, God gives us grace. And how does he do this? God gives us grace demonstrated in Christ. God gives us grace in the fact that when we deserve the punishment for our idolatry, when we deserve to be cast away, when we deserve to be left alone to our idols, trying to find fulfillment in them, trying to seek happiness and and joy and fulfillment in them, we deserve to be crushed, but he gives grace in the fact that the punishment that you and I deserve for pursuing other idols, the punishment that you and I deserve for pursuing other things, he puts that, he deals with our idolatry and putting that on Jesus. So that when Christ was stretched out on the cross, God dealt with our idolatry, past, present, and future, by seeing that and putting that on Christ and giving us what we do not deserve, which is grace, which is mercy. And what he does in giving us grace and, in, and giving us mercy is also the way he deals with idols in the way that he, and we see in Ezekiel. Because he deals with these idolaters too. Well, what does he do? Ezekiel chapter 36 In Ezekiel's context, this, this idolatry is dealt with too, and it's, it's dealt with in, in our situations as well, because God gives us grace. In Ezekiel, it, God is telling what he's going to do, and, and not acting in wrath, but acting for his own namesake. He's telling them what he's going to do to display and show grace with, against the, you know, for these idolaters. 
He says in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 31, I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. God cleanses us from idols when we cannot cleanse ourselves. When we cannot get it together, when we pursue idols and and put things in the place that God is supposed to be in, we need to to recognize that and realize that we are not treasuring God and and trust him to cleanse us from these idols. And next he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And he goes on and talks about what he, what he will give them. And in verse 31, he says, their response is, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. What is the solution here? It's grace, grace given to us in Christ. And God not only gives us grace, but he, he, he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. He not only gives us grace in justifying us and declaring us right, saying to us that I'm going to act as though I never even saw your idolatry because that was placed on Christ. But I'm also going to act to give you new desires. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit so you can desire what is true. You can desire what is ultimately worthy to be treasured. You can desire what is ultimately worthy to be found joy and satisfaction and peace and, and life and comfort in. I'm going to show you my beauty, my my glory. I'm going to bring you to myself by giving you a new heart and a new spirit so that you could have true and new desires, so that you can desire God, so that you can desire the beauty in Christ and delivering us from our sins and, and giving us a new heart and a new spirit, and we can enjoy him. Our response is to be like these people in Israel, to, to be like these people in James. The instruction that he gives to them in James 4, right after in verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This morning, if you are wrestling with idols, say, God, God cleanse me. God, remove the heart that, does not desi- that doesn't desire you when I desire idols and show me your beauty. Show me that you've given me a new heart, that you've given me a new spirit through the grace that you've given me in Christ. Help me to see you and desire you. Give me new desires to want to obey you. Give me new desires to want to treasure you, to want to see that you are worth more than any idol that I could ever pursue, that in you, you are the source of joy when I'm feeling discontent. You are the source of peace when I'm feeling war. You are, you are the source of, of life and of strength. And, and repent for the idols. It's, like, I, I, there's, it's just foolishness. There's, why would I ever think that, that this could be found, that this joy that God has given me, this grace and this mercy and this love that God has given me could ever be found in, in this or in that? Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods says the following. He says, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol." So he's saying in the context of Ezekiel, he, God kicks the door down and he removes that secret room. And instead he, he brings it back to where worship is supposed to be in spirit and in truth. And he shows us his beauty. He shows us his glory. And he paints himself on, on the walls of our imagination, on the walls of our hearts so that everything's in proper perspective now. 
I can enjoy family. I can enjoy career. I can enjoy job. I can enjoy everything. I can enjoy those things that I was trying to pursue, once trying to pursue to make me happy because I, I, ha- I, have, hap- I have happiness. I have joy. I have God. I have Christ. Everything's in proper perspective. And God's grace is the solution to our idolatry. So if you are wrestling with idols, if you, are, if you have this secret place that nobody knows about, that nothing gets in and nothing comes out, and you've built this wall over it so that nobody can see it, know that God sees it. Know that God sees it. And that he gives grace for it. He gives grace so that we turn from our idols and see that he is worthy to be treasured more than anything else. Jesus must become more beautiful to our imagination, more attractive to our heart than our idols. And seeing Jesus as more beautiful and seeing Jesus as more attractive comes in the gospel. And seeing that God sent his son to die for us as unworthy sinners, as people who fall short, as people who will always turn into other gods. In his love and his grace and his mercy, he sends his son to bear the punishment that you and I deserve so that if we believe in him, if we trust in him, he allows, he, he, he makes himself the source of our joy. He makes himself the source of our, our pleasure. And Jesus becomes more beautiful. So we turn to all things in the world. We say, Jesus is more beautiful. And this is how idols are removed. This is how idols of the heart are removed. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord God. Lord, may it penetrate our hearts. May it get to the deep places, Lord God, where we hide from you. Where we sit in our dark rooms, Lord God, and, and, and plot and, and, and paint up our idols on the walls. And Lord, expose those idols. Rid us of them. Give us a new heart. Give us a new spirit. Cleanse us. Remind us of the grace that you've given us in sending your son to die for our sins. To die for, the, for our idolatry, to die for all the commandments, all the laws, all the things that we've, we've ever fallen short and broken. So that we can enjoy you, the ultimate and supreme treasure. The ultimate source of joy, the ultimate source of peace. Continue to remind us of this. Help us em- embrace this, Lord God, as we enter into this new year. Realize that you are more beautiful. So we just thank you that you would just receive glory and honor from our lives, Lord God. Thank you for everything that you've done for us and continue to do for us in in the grace that you've shown through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we'll have a moment of reflection. I encourage you, if maybe you haven't dug into the walls of your own hearts, to take this time to do that. To ask yourself, what is painted on the walls of my heart? What's, what, how am I serving self more than I'm serving God? Have I dethroned God in my imagination? Have I, have I thrown a rock at him telling him he's not fit for his place? Through my seeking and longing for happiness and contentment and acceptance and other things. Take a moment to ask yourself these questions and, and take the time to realize that God has gotten it right. He's looked your idols and he's looked your sin in the face and punished it and, and put it on the cross on Christ. And and, and in response, repent. Say, God, I have idolized things. I have exalted things more than I've exalted you. I have seen beauty in in, in things more than I've seen beauty in you. Take a moment and we'll reflect and we'll come back for, for communion.